Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Open your Bibles to John 4. John 4. Put an outline tonight. There it is. John 4. Just leave it open on your lap, and that's going to be our text tonight. John 4. You know, we could all certainly uh, improve in our ability to be evangelists. I'm a preacher. Preachers are kind of called evangelists, kind of a synonym for preacher or minister, but I mean it in the general way, the universal way. Every Christian's an evangelist. Every, pre- every Christian's job description is to teach people, to teach people to plant seeds of the gospel. That's your job. And we can all certainly stand to improve in our ability to do that. And so what are some of the things that hold us back from being the evangelizers that we need to be? Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's the just being uncomfortable with those inevitable, awkward conversations that we're going to have with people. Because we're surrounded by non-Christians. Non-Christians, by their very nature, are resistant to the Word. And so sometimes that involves bringing things up that they're not naturally going to gravitate towards. And that produces awkward conversations sometimes. Sometimes we're just discouraged. We think, oh, I've talked to people like that. They're not going to listen. It's not going to work. Sometimes we're pessimistic. But most of the time, it's apathy. Apathy keeps us from teaching people the way that we should. Apathy keeps us from seizing those opportunities like we should. Let me move this up just a little bit closer to everyone. So, One of the reasons why we're not evangelizing like we should is because our baseline is wrong. We have the wrong idea of what success looks like, and we have the wrong idea of what failure looks like. We don't know what's a win. We don't know what's a loss. That's my topic for tonight. Now, one of the reasons why our baseline is off is because we we evangelize based upon our our feelings. We think, well, I'll evangelize when I feel like it. I'll wait until the moment feels right. Then I'll, I'll bring up the church. I'll bring up Jesus. I'll, I'll bring up what the Bible says about that sin. And I'll just wait until I feel like doing it. That's the wrong baseline. Or maybe we stereotype people. We think, oh, that person's not a candidate for the gospel. Look how messy they are. There's no way they would be receptive to what I have to say. And so the person that we're talking to, they they don't fit into that mold of the perfect candidate for the gospel. And so we don't even touch them. We don't even bring that subject up with them. Or maybe we're just disillusioned when people don't respond like we think think they should. They don't take what we said the way we think they should have. And so we end up gauging our success, not on our message, not on the faithfulness of what we've said, not on our attitude, but we gauge our 
our success on how the message was received. And if it doesn't go very well, which it most often does not, then we think it's a loss. And then we stop. What I want you to see in John chapter 4 is how Jesus evangelized, how Jesus talked to people, how Jesus approached people. I want you to see his baseline and what Jesus considered a win and what he considered a loss. And as the Word incarnate, Jesus was the Word incarnate, he not only taught the Word, but he demonstrated the Word for us, and he demonstrates for us what's a win and what's a loss. So what can we learn from his example? Well, read with me. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So pause right there. Notice Jesus, he's, he's, he's going to Galilee with his disciples. They're in Judea. They're going to Galilee. Galilee is about 120 miles to the north. It's going to be a long journey. Now you can divide that whole region into three areas. You have Galilee at the north, Judea at the south, and in, this, in the middle is Samaria. That's where the Samaritans lived. And so to get to Galilee from Judea, you had to go through Samaria. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another, couldn't stand one another, because there was the centuries-old feud between the uh, Samaritans and the Jews. There was this dark period, several of them in fact, but there was one particular dark period in Israel's history where the Hebrew inhabitants of that area intermarried with Gentiles, the very Gentiles that God had earlier commanded them to drive out of the area. They disobeyed God. They intermarried with the Gentiles. They established their own religion. They adopted paganism in with their kind of obedience to the law, they threw out all of the Old Testament books except the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they accommodated many other uh, pagan religious practices. They were apostates, and the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them, and there was a sense of legitimacy to that as well. Now, the Jews, especially the Jewish elites, the Pharisees, they wouldn't step, uh, step foot in Samaria. And consequently, the Samaritans wouldn't step foot in Jerusalem. The Samaritans established their own religion. They had their own temple. They're on Mount Gerizim. We're going to read about that in just a moment. And so it says in our text that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, this wasn't an absolute need, because most of the time when Jews were going to Galilee, they would go around Samaria. It was the long way, but it was the way they typically would go, because they didn't want to touch Samaritan soil. But he, Jesus, needed to go through Samaria, because he had an appointment with a woman, a woman at a well. 
I want you to learn this. Jesus wasn't afraid of being around messy people. He wasn't afraid of being around people with, with baggage, who were confused, who were living in sin. See, we don't need to only teach the gospel to people that already have their lives together. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is. So it's about the sixth hour. They are wearied from their journey, as we see in our text. The Lord is tired. He's thirsty. The sixth hour is about noon, so the sun is high into the sky. I want you to appreciate the fact that Jesus, even though He's the Son of God, even though He's deity, his, the fact that He was God didn't interfere with His humanity. Jesus got tired. You got tired. I got tired today. It's a long day for me. You get tired sometimes. Jesus understands when you're tired. I also want you to appreciate that Jesus didn't miss an opportunity to teach the gospel to someone even though he was tired. So read with me. Verse 7. A Samaritan, a woman of Samaria, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city, sicker, to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now I want you to notice several ominous details from this text. Notice that this woman is alone. She's alone at this well. Typically, in this culture, women would go to the well outside of the city in groups, not only to share in the daily task of gathering water for their own respective households, but it was a social action as well. They would go in groups to spend time with one another, to hang out. But this woman is coming out in the heat of the day alone, which tells you right now something's different about this woman. Now Jesus is speaking to this woman now, and she's surprised by the fact that he's talking to her. Because in ancient Palestine, Jewish men rarely spoke to Samaritan women, let alone just men speaking to women in general. Here's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. And not only is he speaking to a Samaritan woman, but he's speaking to a sexually loose Samaritan woman. John adds that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They don't take this literally because the disciples have gone into the Samaritan city to buy food. I want you to understand it this way. Uh, Jesus is at a well. Be sharing water with this woman, a Samaritan woman. I want you to think how taboo that would have been at a public water fountain in the 1950s in the South. Think about that. The same thing is going on here. Here's a Jew with a Samaritan woman, and there is a racial divide. But Jesus broke down that barrier. We cannot allow any kind of barriers to keep us from teaching the gospel to other people. Now, I want you to appreciate just how amazing of a moment this is, and I hope you appreciate that more as we read on. This might be the very first meaningful conversation that this woman has ever had with a man who wasn't trying to take advantage of her in some way, sleeping with her without loving her. 
Not to mention, this is probably the first theological conversation she's ever had with a man. I, I love the beauty of this, because here we find Jesus, he's willing to obliterate his reputation. And we live in a world that is far more concerned about our reputation than it is holiness. We need to make sure we're concerned about holiness. That's what Jesus was concerned about. Now look at verse 10. <coughs> Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11. <coughs> the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. It's interesting how Jesus didn't just respond to this woman's surprise, the fact that he would ask her for a drink. Of all people, here's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. He said, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, I wouldn't be the one asking for a drink. You would be the one asking me for a drink. And it wouldn't be physical water. It would be spiritual water. Isn't it interesting how Jesus, he, he, he took a, a normal conversation, a regular conversation, and he moved it in a spiritual direction. That's a win for us. You and I, we need to take everyday conversations with people who are lost and point them in a spiritual direction. And it's interesting how Jesus really wanted to rouse this woman's curiosity. Living water? What's living water? But notice, I want you to appreciate the fact that this woman is pretty smart. Not much gets past her. I like her witty response. She said to Jesus, in essence, You can't give me water. You don't have anything to draw that water with. This well is deep. How do you plan on getting this water? Do you know something that Jacob, who had to dig this well to begin with, didn't know? You see, other men, at this point, would have gotten the message. They would have backed off. But not Jesus. Because Jesus didn't want this woman the way other men wanted this woman. So Jesus, he, he went right past her sarcasm and went straight to her real need, her spiritual need. This woman needed new life. Because here's a woman that had been destroyed by sin, both in a theological sense and in an emotional sense. Because here's a woman, she's alone, she's an outcast of society, she has stopped living and is just merely surviving now. Because her death-like life is soon going to end in eternal death. Do we see that in people around us? Do we see people's lives and realize they're just surviving and they're going to have a sad ending if they don't obey the gospel? Jesus is now offering her living water, springing up, literally leaping up 
everlasting life, salvation, peace, things this woman has never known before. And she responds, Sir, give me this water. She likes what she's hearing. Whatever Jesus said, she wants it. She just doesn't yet understand exactly what Jesus is offering. I want you to appreciate just how terrible of a life this woman has. Every day she comes out of the town, which is about a half mile away, because we know where that well is. We know where the city is. So we know that well is today is about a half mile away from the town of Sicker. Every day she comes to this well in the heat of the day to avoid all the other women that come out to the well. She comes to get water for a man who doesn't love her, who just uses her for her body. She can't go to the well with other women because she has no friends. She's cursed. No one's willing to go with her. She's constantly reminded that she's alone. And she says to him, if you have any kind of way, Jesus, where I don't have to do this anymore, tell me, what do I need to do? I want this living water, she says. If this is Jesus' opportunity, it's interesting that Jesus could have offered this woman salvation right then and there. Now she's listening. Now, she, now he has her attention. Jesus could tell her anything. Now's the perfect time if he were alive today in the flesh. Now's the perfect time for him to say, well, all you need to do is be baptized. Jesus didn't say anything like that. You, need, you and I need to understand that baptizing people isn't what constitutes a win. That's not enough. Conversion is what's a win. Not just baptism. How many people have you and I seen in our lifetime where we've baptized them and only a few weeks later, they're gone. They're nowhere to be found. They might have been baptized, but they haven't darkened the door of the church building for decades. If I had a dollar for all the people that I know have been baptized, only to walk away from the Lord, I'd be a rich man. Jesus isn't interested, and he's not interested in today in us just baptizing people. It doesn't matter if we baptize people if they aren't converted. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, right before he ascended into heaven? He said in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You and I are commanded to make disciples. Now you can't make disciples without baptizing someone. We know that. I'm not going to suggest anything to the contrary got to baptize them. You're not a Christian until you've been baptized. can't have your sins washed away until you've been baptized. But unless we teach them, unless we teach them the truth, unless we are thorough in their teaching, unless we make sure they understand what they're getting into, unless we make sure that they're ready to make Jesus Lord over their life, unless we give to them to see how much they need their sins forgiven, then if we baptize them, if we baptize them, we're only getting them wet, and they're not going to remain. We have to make them disciples. It's interesting that Jesus, he's not taking the easy way out with this woman. That wouldn't be a win. He's going to take this woman to the point of her sin. 
She says, sir, give me this water and note what he says. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. I love the fact that Jesus didn't immediately give this woman living water. Because she vaguely sees her need for it, but she needs to see more than anything now at this point, the sin in her life that's keeping her from that living water. You see, when you're teaching someone the gospel, you've got to take them to the point of their sin. You can't just teach them the plan of salvation without them realizing what they need to be saved from. Jesus knew this woman's situation. He knew all about her sexually promiscuous life. So he asks her about her husband. And it's interesting that she says, I have no husband. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of a half-truth. It's a partial confession. And Jesus praises her for the truth that she said. Oh, uh, and then he puts his finger right on it. He says, in essence, you're absolutely right. The fact of the matter is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband you're carrying water for a man who doesn't love you every single day. That's what Jesus said to her. You kind of get the impression that here's a woman that just kind of throws herself into relationships. Maybe she tells herself, maybe I'll find love here. Maybe I'll find love there. And she just keeps trying it. And every time each relationship ends in failure... She keeps getting taken advantage of, especially in that culture. She's isolated because of the lifestyle she's chosen to live, and it's brought her a life of loneliness, of shame, of exclusion. You look at this woman at the well, and you say, that's a sinful woman. That's a messy person. And you'd be exactly right. She is a sinful woman. She's made terrible mistakes. She's paying the consequences, and rightfully so, for her mistakes. But she's also a lost and hurting woman. And she's never experienced love or grace like Jesus is offering her. And I love, here, here's, here's God in the flesh coming and sitting with her and gently talking to her. And if Jesus can save her, he can save anyone. And if Jesus can save you, he can save anyone. And if you look at this woman and you think that you're any better than this woman, how she was, then you've got a heart problem. You might not have had five husbands. You might not have ever had an affair. But your sin that you've committed in your life is just as ugly. No matter how little that sin might be by our wisdom, all sin is an insult against God.
And if God can save you, he can save anyone. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's interesting how Jesus is telling this woman all about her life, details that she has not told him, and she immediately concludes, you must be a prophet. She says, wow, you've just looked into my soul. You saw right through me. You must be a prophet. And so she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. When you read that, you might think she's changing the subject. You see the sin in my life. Oh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Do you know about my five husbands and my live-in boyfriend? Oh, by the way, should I worship at the Baptist church or the Catholic church? Sounds like she's changing the subject, doesn't it? But that's not what she's doing. She's starting to ask about worship. Why does she bring up the temple? Ultimately, the temple, what is the temple for? The temple is where you go to deal with what? Your sin. You go to the temple to deal with your sin. That's where the priests are. That's where they make atonement for your sin. And so basically what this woman is saying, all right, Jesus, you've, you've exposed me. You've caught me in my sin. So where do I go deal with that sin? Do I go to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship in their own temple? Or do I go to Jerusalem where the Jews go to worship in their temple? Now this was a very controversial issue. Remember that. There is bad blood between the Jews, Jesus is a Jew, and this woman, a Samaritan. Bad blood. And there was a lot of heat over this question, whose temple was legitimate? Where to worship? I love how Jesus didn't just gloss over this. He didn't just pretend like, oh, we're not going to go there. That's controversy. Sometimes we share the gospel with someone, but we're afraid to dive into controversy. We're afraid to bring up hot-button issues. But Jesus teaches us that's a good way to lose. You've got to teach the truth. Don't back off from the truth. Be kind, be respectful, but don't water down the truth. You're never going to make disciples if you water down the truth. Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. In other words, he's saying the Samaritans, you're not worshiping right. You're wrong. The Jews have it right. The Jews have accepted all of God's revelation up to that point. The Samaritans only accepted part of it. And not only, not only were the Samaritans worshiping incorrectly, but here's a woman whose sin was keeping her from worshiping correctly. And Jesus says, in essence, if you want to worship God, then you need to worship him in spirit and truth. You need to worship him like you mean it. And you need to worship him the way that he has asked you to worship him. 
He says you need to worship in spirit and in truth. By the way, it's virtually unheard of today in the religious world today to hear that there's such a thing as false worship. Jesus just told this woman there's such a thing as false worship. False worship can be divided into two different categories. There's moral sins that, you, that keep you from worshiping. Jesus, uh, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that we are to worship not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Remember, God rejected the worship of Cain and accepted the worship of Abel? Why? Because Cain was a wicked man. He wasn't worshiping in faith, and he had a heart full of murder. God didn't accept Cain's worship. You also have not just moral sins that keep us from worshiping. What sins are in your life, by the way? What moral sins are you clinging to that, that you haven't repented of? that are keeping you from worship. God's not going to accept your worship if you've got sin in your life that you're harboring. There's also religious sins that we can commit. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, He said, In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When you alter God's revelation in any way, when you add or take away from God's word, that's sin, Jesus says. That's wrong. What we want to do here, what we want to do at Edgewood, is simply speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. We don't want to add or modify or change God's Word and what He's asked for in worship. That's what we want. Otherwise, it's sin. Jesus says there's such a thing as false worship. Now look at verse 25. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. I love how this woman, she falls on the last line of defense that she has. You know what that is? Delay. She wants to backpedal out of this conversation because she doesn't want to do what Jesus says. She says, well, we better wait until the Messiah gets here to sort all this out. You ever talk to someone and they just say, well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe I'll listen some other time. Maybe I'll wait until this part of my life clears up and then I'll obey the gospel. It's one of the devil's tactics. Delay. And she was right, of course. The Messiah needs to have the final say in everything. Jesus needs to have the final say in everything. She just didn't know Jesus was the Messiah, and so she played perfectly into Jesus' hands. Jesus drops this bombshell at the perfect time. He says, good, you don't have to wait any longer, because I am the Messiah, and I've come just as you've expected. How do you like that? So we read on. We're going to summarize just a few verses the disciples come back from the town. They are surprised that Jesus is speaking to this sinful woman. And she sees the disciples 
after a long conversation with Jesus, most of that conversation is not recorded for us. You and I just have the cliff notes. She runs back to town, and she says to all of the town and all the people in, in the town of Sicker, come see a man who's, who's told me everything that I've ever done. Meanwhile, the disciples are with Jesus there at the well. And they say, Jesus, we brought you some food. We went through the drive-thru. We picked you up a Big Mac. They didn't have Big Macs back then. We picked you up some food. Jesus says, I've already had food. My food is to do the will of the Father. Disciples say, look at verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what, that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I love this. Jesus is telling the disciples, evangelism is like harvesting and planting crops. And he's right. This is almost exactly what evangelism is like. You and I are called to go into the world and scatter seed. That's our job. Telling people about God, telling people about eternal life, about eternal death. There is a heaven, there is a hell, eternity is a long time. There is such a thing as truth, there is such a thing as sin. Jesus wants to save you from your sin. And we have no idea whether that message is going to blossom in the life of someone. Sometimes there's not going to be a harvest. At other times there will be a harvest. Sometimes you have to wait for a harvest. Sometimes you don't have to wait for a harvest. Sometimes the sower and the reaper walk side by side. Sometimes you'll sow a seed and then you will be the one to harvest it. Sometimes you'll sow the seed and another Christian will harvest that. Sometimes someone else will sow the seed and you will harvest it. Think about Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You know it well. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Matthew 13, verse 1. We read, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in a parable, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I love that parable. You know it well. It's interesting how most people stress the different kind of soils. 
What kind of soil are you? Are you the good soil? Or are you the bad soil? And that's an important thing to consider, of course. Are you as receptive to the truth or not? What would it take to convince you that you're wrong about something? You ever thought about that? Surely you're not right about everything. Surely you're confused about something. What would it take to convince you that you're wrong about that something? I ask myself that all the time. I want to make sure that this book can always convince me of what's wrong in my life. I want to make sure that I'm the good soil. We always talk about the soils, but I think that we often neglect the purpose of this parable, which is the sower. Isn't it interesting how the sower planted that seed indiscriminately? You ever thought about that? I'm not much of a farmer. Not, I've never been much of a farmer. I'm really glad I don't have to be a farmer. I love farmers because I like to eat. Some of you know more about farming than I do. I am told, and it makes sense to me, that one of the more expensive parts of farming is the seed. You've got to invest in seed every year. And you don't waste that seed. You make sure the ground is prepared before you put that seed in the ground. Because it can wash away, or it can be bad ground, or you could put it in the ground not right, and it, all the birds come and eat it, and it's gone, and you've wasted all that money. It's interesting how Jesus is commanding us to be the exact opposite of that. Don't be like a regular farmer and only plant only when you're confident in what's going to happen. The sower in this parable planted the seed indiscriminately. He threw it around like it was nothing. Isn't that incredible? See, he spread the seed everywhere. What Jesus is telling us is it's not a loss. If our message falls on bad ground, it's not a loss. It's not a waste. It's only a loss if you don't spread the seed to begin with. It's a loss if you don't even try. In this case, Jesus is the sower, but he's telling his disciples, I want you guys to be the sower. I want you to be teaching people the gospel. I want you to experience the joy of reaping the harvest. It's a waste if you don't. What's keeping you from teaching the gospel? It's not up for you. Jesus didn't give you the power to choose to determine who's the good soil and who's the bad soil. He never gave you that right. And why do we pretend like we have that right? Oh, that's a messy person over there. He's got all kinds of sin. He's a drunk. He's a deadbeat. He's never going to listen to the gospel. I'm not even going to bother. Here's a woman who's in her umpteenth marriage. I'm not going to tell her the gospel. Here's a person that's made a mess of his life. I'm not going to tell him the gospel. Jesus says you're wrong. It doesn't matter whether the seed takes root or not. That's not your job. That's God's job. That's that person's job. 
it's a success if you scatter the seed. We're following the wrong baseline if we're gauging what's success based upon our results. What's a success is you do your job and let God do His. You do your job, spread the seed, and let God make the increase, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And Jesus here in this setting is saying to His disciples, we're going to go into Samaria now. You haven't told anyone here the gospel but I have. This woman has told the gospel to all of the people. Now all of the people in this Samaritan town are responding. The most unlikely people in the region. They're responding. They want to hear the truth. And Jesus says, we're going to go haul in this fruit now. And we need to remember that sometimes the most unlikely people to obey the gospel are the ones that are going to obey the gospel. And sometimes the people that we think are the perfect candidates of the gospel, because they're educated, because they're clean, because they've got their lives together, because they're wealthy, and we think, you'll fit right in here. And they're not going to listen. It's the people who've made a mess of their lives. Those are the ones. We just need to spread the seed indiscriminately. Our time's almost up. It's probably up already. Let me give you some just quick lessons from this text, some things I jotted down. Number one, here's one lesson I learned from our text. Sometimes the best evangelistic opportunities come when you are tired. Jesus was exhausted by the time he got to this well. But here's, the, here's, here's his chance. And he didn't say, I'm not going to talk to this woman right now, I'm tired. He did it. And that's a lesson to us. Sometimes the best opportunities for us come when we're tired Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. The second lesson is what we've already talked about. Christianity is for everyone. Jesus didn't recognize social barriers. Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember him? Nicodemus came by Jesus, to Jesus at night. He was wealthy. He was part of the Jewish elite. He was educated. This woman was the exact opposite. She was poor. She was a social outcast. She was morally destitute. And Jesus spoke to both of them. You and I, we cannot be a respecter of persons. God's not. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Can Christians be prejudiced towards other people? Jesus wasn't. Can I be racially prejudiced towards others? Absolutely not. Can I be morally prejudiced towards others? How, how do I treat do I treat people differently when they're living in sin and they don't know better? Am I too good to talk to them about the gospel? Am I financially or economically prejudiced towards others? People that make too much money, more money than I do or less money than I do? Am I afraid to be around them? Can I be intellectually prejudiced towards others? Someone has more of an education than I do. Someone has less of an education than I do. And because of that difference, I'm not going to talk to them about the gospel. Jesus did not recognize such barriers. Jesus died for all men. 
And if I'm prejudiced towards someone, I'm denying the blood of Jesus to someone. Can't be like that. The third lesson I learned from this is that teaching people about Christ, listen to me, involves confronting sin. You cannot teach someone the gospel without confronting them in their sin. When Jesus was going to share with this woman living water, he didn't want to just give her the benefits of Christianity without helping her come to repentance first. How dare we teach someone, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, without teaching them what repentance is going to look like in their life. How dare we do that? When you teach someone the gospel, you need to ask them questions about what's going on in their life. You need to ask them questions about what could possibly keep them from obeying the gospel. Jesus said we need to help people count the cost. What is repentance going to look like in my life? We've all committed different sins, and so repentance is going to look different for any two given people. If we are only telling people the fluffy, fun details about Christianity without telling them how to face their sin, then we're only going to baptize them. We're not going to make disciples. We find that Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, if we read on, we ran out of time, but if you read on, you'll notice that his conversation with this one woman led to the conversion of multitudes of people in this town of Sychar. And that needs to remind us of the potential that every person has when we teach them the gospel. The next person, however unlikely they are, who we share the gospel with, could be that person that brings a crowd of people to Jesus. The question is, how can you be more useful to the Lord? What can you learn from Jesus? Maybe we can adjust our baseline. We can think better about what's a win and what's a loss. Thank you for your attention.